0: You may be seated, and I invite you, as you are taking your seats, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. We are finishing out the first chapter of this glorious, glorious book. Many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He died in 1758, but not before and giving us a myriad of theological understanding of depth beyond what we had received before that. Many people, even secular people, say that Jonathan Edwards is the brightest mind, the most intelligent intellectual mind that's ever been in America. He was a pastor, he was a husband, he was a father, and his life, as we look back on it, is an absolutely astounding testimony to God's grace in giving us a man who could Understand the depth of God's word and his attributes and his character, and give us an understanding of those things. But his life was not all a happy episode. There was much sorrow in his life. He was fired from his congregation. They took a vote against him and they asked him to leave, and so he was fired. Over the issue of communion, he said that communion is for believers only, as the Bible clearly teaches, and yet they said, we want to be able to partake of communion and let anybody take a a communion, non-believer, believer alike. And he said, no, these elements are for believers. He stood in front of the Lord's table and said, if you are not a believer, you cannot eat, and they pulled him away and they fired him. One of his friends, David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans in New Jersey was sick with tuberculosis and stayed in the home of Jonathan Edwards and his family. And David Brainerd died when he was 29 years old in the Edwards home, a close friend of Jonathan Edwards. And then Jonathan Edwards' daughter, who was taking care of David Brainerd when he was home, her name was Jerusha, she caught Brainerd's disease and she also died. Jonathan Edwards Before he died, he was 54 years old. He died of a smallpox vaccination gone wrong. He said these words before he put his head on a pillow and went asleep in this life and woke up in the arms of his Savior. He said, trust in God and you need not fear. And he passed away. Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, wrote to her daughter, whose husband had also just recently passed away her husband was Aaron Burr senior so Aaron Burr junior that we know about from history was Jonathan Edwards' uh, great son-in-law or great grandson-in-law Jonathan Edwards' wife Sarah wrote this letter to her daughter after the passing of both her daughter's husband and Jonathan Edwards her father she said this what shall i say a holy and a good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done this, and he has made me adore his goodness. That we even had your father for so long, but my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be. God has covered us with a dark cloud. She learned her theology from her husband. She learned it very well. But here's my question. Is this theology correct? She says God is the one who has done this. God has taken away your husband. God has taken away my husband. God has taken away your father. Are those right words are those theologically accurate words in our day and age, those words would be considered an outrage to many people, including Christians. But I believe that Sarah and Jonathan Edwards absolutely got the character of God correct. And I believe that Naomi is going to follow exactly the same example that they are ultimately following from her. As she said, God's the one who's behind this, and he's good, and I trust him. Let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. So they both went, Naomi and Ruth, until they came to Bethlehem, from Moab to Bethlehem. And when they come, had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi or Pleasant, Call me Mara, or bitter, because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning Of barley harvest. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding into your sovereignty. God, prepare us now for suffering. We are all going to suffer. Many of us have suffered, and some even here are suffering. I pray that they would find a sister in Naomi through their suffering. They would agree with what she's saying. God, prepare us for the days ahead that we would be able to say like Naomi, God's hand has gone out against me, but he is good and I trust him and I take my refuge in him. So open our eyes now. We need your help. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who is interceding for us even now. Jesus, thank you for praying for us. We pray it all in your name. Amen. There are three truths that we see in these short verses about suffering, about God's character, about God's sovereignty. Three truths about how we understand our circumstances, about what our circumstances can do to our understanding. Three truths that we will look at together. The first truth is this. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. I agree with what Sarah Edwards said. I agree with what Jonathan Edwards said. I agree with what Naomi is saying. Let's set the scene for hearing her words. They both went, verse 19, they both went. So this is Ruth and Naomi. Uh, We remember from last week, uh, Ruth's amazing decision. We see conversion in her decision. She was probably converted even before those words that she spoke. Uh, Your God is my God. Uh, he is now, right? No future tense. There was Everything was future tense in what she was saying. I will die where you die. I, I will go where you go. I will live where you live because your people are my people. Your God is my God currently. Remember, no future tense verbs there. So you you are my people. Your God is my God currently. And that's why I'm living out the way that I'm living out this amazing radical devotion. So she goes with Naomi to Bethlehem. It's about a 70-mile journey. It's about seven to ten days of walking. And their arrival in Bethlehem is an event. It's been at least ten years. Naomi left with Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, and now she comes back with this woman, this Moabite woman, that clearly is a different ethnicity. And we're going to see that several times throughout the book of Ruth. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and as they arrive in Bethlehem, middle of verse 19, all of the city is stirred Because of them. Now, this word stirred can mean two things. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's the word hum. It's an onomatopoetic word. It's a word that means a low hum, murmuring together. So maybe, and there are contexts where this word literally just means people getting together, kind of huddling up and humming, murmuring together about what they're seeing. And so some commentators have taken this passage to mean that they gather together, they see Naomi coming, they see the suffering, the distress. Maybe physically, uh, she, she is wearing these 10 years of suffering and depression. And obviously, Elimelech isn't with her, Malon isn't with her, and Kilion isn't with her. And so they're, murmuring, what, what could this be? Some are whispering, some are watching from a distance. But this word can also be used in a sense of a, a celebratory, ecstatic, exuberant joy. So some commentators say that people are running out to say, Naomi, you're back. You're here, and they're hugging her, and they're loving on her. And I don't think we have to make a decision one way or the other because I'm guessing that both are happening. Maybe that's exactly why this word is used. Some people are looking, going, you're you're missing people. And I I have questions. I want to know what happened. Naomi, you don't look so good. It's been 10 years, but it looks like you've been aged 30 years. What's happened? And then some people are just glad to see her. We thought you were gone. You told us that you were just going to go to Moab for a little while until the harvest would would, uh, get back together. We we would have food. We'd have a, a harvest. You were gone for a lot longer than we expected you to be gone for. So we're so happy to see you. Those are the people that are going to run out and hug her, right? You're back. And when you are overrun with bitterness and despair and depression... Who are the people that bug you the most? The people that say, oh, just be chipper. Have a, have a great day. It's so good to see you, isn't it? Like, no, life is not good, and I would appreciate that your smile would be turned upside down with me, please. And that's why I believe the people that run out to greet her, Naomi responds the way that she does. So I think that there are probably people humming in the back, murmuring in the back, that are not going to go instantly and say, what happened to you? But this crowd says to her, as they're hugging her, where have you been? We love you. We missed you. And she says to them, as they say, is this Naomi? She's back. She says, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. We heard this today in Sunday school. Names have meaning. You name your child in the Hebrew scriptures. You name them something that has Profound meaning behind it. So her name means pleasant or happy or joyful. This is a great experience. And she says, Don't call me a great experience. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's a play on words. She says, Don't call me pleasant, happy circumstances. Call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. Or to use the word Mara, if we wanted to keep the play on words, Call me Mara because God has marred my life. That's what she's saying. She's using a play on words. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Notice she says, because, end of verse 20, the Almighty has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty, that's that word Shaddai. Usually we see El Shaddai, all-powerful one. That's why it's translated in our Bible as Almighty, limitless in your power. Notice what Naomi is saying. She says there is a God who has no problem dealing with anything in this world. He is powerful beyond all comprehension He is limitless in his power. So therefore, my circumstances are bad not because he couldn't do anything to stop it. They're bad because he has all power to enable them to happen and to allow them to happen. This is a very profound statement. These things have not happened because God's not powerful enough to stop them. God's behind these things. He is the one who has dealt bitterly with me. She said this earlier in verse 13. Would you therefore wait until sons were fully grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's bitter. It's bitter for me, more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Her only explanation for her circumstances is the almighty hand of God. So, two questions. What do you make of what she's saying and what do you make of how she is saying it? There are many people that look at this and say, Naomi, you shouldn't be saying these things. And they they give two reasons for it. You shouldn't be saying what you're saying because it's not quite accurate. And you shouldn't be saying how you're saying what you're saying because it sounds like you're pretty angry. So what do you make of these words? What, What do you make of her statements? By the very definition of what she is saying, she is proclaiming the sovereignty of God. And I believe that she would absolutely agree with Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul says God works all things after the counsel of His own will. All things, everything that happens, good and bad, it comes from the hand of God. Now, Naomi is going to struggle. She would struggle, as we all struggle, with whether the counsel of God's will is good for us or not. But she's not struggling with whether God is behind this. She declares God is sovereign. And if you have a sovereign God who is in control of everything then you have a God that you are going to be perplexed by very often in life. But don't forget the balance of what she's saying. Don't forget the balance. She believes in a sovereign God who has afflicted her, yes, but she also believes in a sovereign God who hands good things to her people, or to his people, and to her fellow Israelites. Look at verse 8. She prays for her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may Yahweh deal kindly with you. That's the word for hesed. May he give you hesed love, that not let goable love. So hesed love comes from the hand of God, and afflicting circumstances come from the hand of God. So many people, when they zero in on verses 19 through 22, they just think, wow, she is just angry at God and just thinks all God does is give bad circumstances. No, she's balanced in what she's saying. She says good things come from God's hand. Bad things come from God's hand. They both come from the hand of God. Naomi believes that God deals kindly and sorrowfully. And she acknowledges both are in God's hand. She doesn't blame anything other than God. And I believe she is right to do this. I believe it is good to do this. I believe it's biblical to do this. And I believe it's advantageous for us to do this. Let me give you just some verses. I'll give you the reference. We're not going to turn there because we don't have time. I'll read them for you. But you can take these verses back and look these up on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. God says, See now that I, I am he. There is no other God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of earth no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, he declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure." Psalm 105, verses 16 through 17. God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. He sent Joseph through slavery, which is what Genesis 50, verse 20 says, that God meant for good the very same thing that the brothers meant for evil. This is all over the Bible. God's sovereign hand over all things, his allowance of evil, his ordaining of evil to happen, it's all over the Bible. John Piper says it this way, the biblical categories of God's sovereignty lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible waiting for somebody to seriously open the book. They don't kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the Almighty. It's all over the Bible. So what do we make about what she is saying? I don't think that she's saying anything incorrect. I don't think that she's saying anything that is unbiblical. I think God would agree with everything that she's saying. This is why we sing songs about God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. We sing songs that declare how firm a foundation you say to the Lord, even in the midst of the trials, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. You are taking me through those trials, but your grace will be with me. Your strength will uphold me. I don't think what she is saying is wrong at all. Now, a different question. What do you make of how she is saying what she's saying? What do you make of how she is saying what she's saying? Again, many people criticize Naomi here and say, man, she just sounds bitter. Like somebody needs to talk to her and confront her and say, stop saying these things because God's good, God's a good God and you just need to be okay with the hand that he's dealt you and move on. I don't think those people have thoroughly read the Bible because Moses, Elijah, Job, all of them, David, David, they all have these laments that have inside of them complaint. And they are all acts of worship. One of these days as a church, I want to go through an understanding of the theology of lament and complaining well. Because many people would look at Naomi and say, man, she's just complaining to a certain degree. But there is a great theology of lament and complaint before God. These complaints that are raised to God, biblically, they're welcomed by him. You can absolutely ask me anything, God's saying, because you're taking my sovereignty seriously. If he's a sovereign God, he's the almighty God, then he can handle with you wrestling with these problems. Saying, I don't understand. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Even our Savior on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people say it's not a good thing to ask God why. Why? I just say, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> Your Savior cries out, why? Why? What's happening? Why are you letting this happen? And we know our Savior's sinless. It's not wrong to cry out, why? Now, there's a, a doubt that can creep in behind that crying out, right? There's a doubting that can say, why? Because you must not be good. And then uh, assuming evil intentions on God's motives, that's, that's not helpful. That's wrong. But That's not what Naomi is doing. She doesn't just say, oh, well, these things just happened. She says, you are behind this. You are a sovereign God. I don't know why you did what you did, but you're behind this. She knows that the God who brings about circumstances that make us cry is also the God who will wipe away every tear that we cry. Uh, Psalm chapter 90 says he's going to wipe away our tears. He holds our tears in, the bo- in a bottle. He knows every single tear we cry, and he never wastes a tear of his kids. So our God feels pain along with us. In fact, do you remember last week when we put up on the screen, we saw that the chiastic structure, that chiasm of what Ruth was saying, where it all zoomed in on the middle, very Hebrew, Aramaic way of describing things so that the middle was emphasized and the middle of her statement was your people, my people, no verbs. Because of this reality, I'm going to do these things. Naomi here does a chiastic structure as well. If you can see... She says, verse 20, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So, Almighty, then Lord, then Lord, then Almighty. This time it's only two terms that are used, an A, B, B, A, in that chiastic structure that we looked at last week. So what's in the middle here for her? The middle is not The almighty hand of God, just willy-nilly, he does everything, he orchestrates everything, and just whether it's fun or not, he's just throwing lightning bolts all over the place. Note the middle of what she says is the character of God. The almighty hand of God is governed by his name is Yahweh, his covenant-keeping love for us. His hand might go out bitterly against us, but it's never because he doesn't love us. We've described this in the last two sermons on the book of Ruth. It's never because he doesn't love us. And she's saying that here. His hand's got out, gone out against me, but the almighty hand of God, it comes from a heart that cares, that loves. She knows Lamentations chapter 3, verses 33, and it hasn't even been written yet at this point which says that God does not afflict his people willingly, is what my translation says, but literally in the Hebrew, from the heart. He does afflict his people, but it's never with, oh, this will be fun, to wreck somebody's life. No, he's always with sorrow in his heart saying, I don't want to have to do this, but this is going to bring about the greatest good, and so therefore I'm going to do this. I don't want to have to do this. I've said this a lot for for my own son. Would I have signed up for just, hey, go ahead, uh, when he's nine days old, cut his chest open, pull it open, and start working on his heart? No, I don't want that. But when I was told that's the only option or else he's going to die, I'll pay money. I'll pay money to see him go through pain. I'll pay money to have his chest open, to have his heart worked on so that he can live. And it's not exciting to see him go through that pain. It's with tears in my eyes that I'm watching him going through that pain, but I know there's something that's gonna happen because of this, that's gonna be produced through this. And so I will allow what I hate to bring about that which I love. And that's what God does with us. He allows that which he hates. He ordains that which he hates to bring about that which he loves. The, The best place to look at this is the cross. Was God the Father happy when Jesus died? No, because if he's looking at his son, his one and only son, the son that he loved, and he's seen his son be betrayed, spit upon, beaten, whipped, murdered. But is God happy when he sees his son dying on a cross? Absolutely he is, because he knows this is going to bring about our salvation. Naomi knows these things. So she says, God, covenant-keeping Yahweh God, He's behind this. So what do you make of her theology and the way that she's saying it? I would take it any day. I would take what she's saying any day over a theology that would seek to make excuses for God. Oh, get him off the hook. He's not, no, he's not responsible. I would take this any day. This is remarkable faith because what she's saying is there's a God who I know loves me. I don't know how this is love. He's bringing about these circumstances, but I'm not running away from him. She could easily have said, God's hand is against me, and I'm leaving him. But she says, God's hand is against me, and I'm staying right here. She's sure about three things. She's sure, number one, that God is the only sovereign God. She's sure, number two, that God has decimated her life. And she's sure, number three, that God is a hesed, a covenant-keeping love showing God. He's a good God. He's decimated my life. He's sovereign. She knows those three things all at the same time and they're not incompatible. There's faith in all of this. She's not walking away from God. Now, she's not singing, Oh, victory in Jesus, right? She's not super ecstatic about what's happening, but she's not running away. What about for you? Have you ever been in a circumstance where you are wondering what just happened and who's behind it? What's just happened and who's behind it? Many people use those words, it just happened. In fact, we're going to see biblical authors like Samuel in the book of Ruth, if he's the one who wrote it, he's going to use those words. He's going to use the Hebrew word for chance. He's going to say, well, it just happened by chance. But they're using it sarcastically because they know there is no such thing as chance. If chance is what is going on in these verses behind the sorrow and suffering that Naomi is experiencing, then God's taken out of the picture. Chance will not wipe tears away from your eyes. Only the God who has allowed and caused those tears to flow has the ability to wipe them away. Many people feel like they have to get God off the hook, right? Maybe well-intentioned. They feel like, well, this is a rough ordeal, so we're going to get God off the hook by saying he really had no part in this. But again, if you read the Bible, he doesn't ever want to be taken off the hook. He wants to be put on the hook. He's behind everything. He never does evil, he can't tempt anybody. James, we've studied that in our Bible studies together. He can't tempt anybody. He can't sin. There are many things God can't do, and we praise God he can't do those things. But he's allowing, ordaining. He's ultimately behind everything that happens. So, whether or not you think her attitude in saying these is the right attitude, the reality is you can do a whole lot worse than grappling with God. You can do a whole lot worse than wrestling with him. What did Jacob do? I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I will not let you go. And God doesn't say, how dare you wrestle with me? Our God can handle our wrestlings. So wrestle with him. And then go to the scriptures and see his character so that you can cry out, you are Yahweh. You are a good God. You are a covenant-keeping God, and you love me. I don't know if you've ever said these words before. I'll never forget, there was a moment at the previous church I was a part of where there were a lot of things that were happening in a particular elder's life and in tears at an elder meeting, he just, he couldn't speak. His voice was quivering. We were gonna be praying for him. We were asking for updates on everything that was happening and his voice is quivering and he had to take some time and with tears just flowing down his eyes, he said, it just seems like the hand of the Lord has gone forth against us. And I just remember thinking, I want to be able to say that when I go through suffering. God's hand's behind this, but I'm never going to doubt that it's good. Romans 8, 32, God did not spare his own son for us. He delivered him up for us also. How will he not, along with Jesus, freely give us all things? God the Father's done the hardest thing, therefore we can't doubt his love for us. And so if he's giving us hard circumstances, it is not because he doesn't love us. It is because he loves us and he has something better for us. And that really leads us to the second point. The only problem that I have with what Naomi is saying is that it's short-sighted. She doesn't have the story of Joseph in her bones yet, right? She isn't able to say, well, what God is allowing here, he's meaning for good, even though it's evil that's happened. She's become embittered, and not in a sense of somebody has hurt her and so she's angry, but in a sense where so much bitter circumstances have happened around her that she just can't see anything but darkness in front of her. This is point number two. Not only, number one, is God behind suffering. He's sovereign over suffering. But number two, suffering can easily blind us. Suffering can easily blind us. Notice what Naomi says, verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This is a right and a wrong statement. I went out full. I understand what she's saying, right? I had a husband and two sons, and they're not with me. But if she truly went out full, why would she have gone out? She left because she wasn't full. She had no food. They were on the brink of death. So she didn't have food. She wasn't completely full, or else she wouldn't have left. And then she says, I came back empty. I've got nothing. And I just, I've just i always thought at this moment, again, the character of Ruth. Because Ruth is standing right next to her. And Naomi says, I, was, I went out full and God has taken everything and now I have nothing. And I like to just think in my sanctified imagination that as Naomi, she's as handsy as I am when I'm talking. And as Naomi says, I went out full and I came back with nothing that she just, her hand grazes across Ruth, and Ruth goes, well, what about me? Like, I'm, I'm right here. Amazing that Ruth says, I'll still stick around after that. Like, she's just been called nothing, but I'll stick around. Here's the reality. When we are suffering, we tend to magnify what we don't have and minimize what we do have. We tend to magnify what we don't have and minimize what we do have. We tend to forget what God did when we were convinced there's something else that he should be doing. We are forgetting in the moments of suffering what God did in the good times when we're convinced that there's something he should be doing. God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something? We're forgetting what he has done. Now, I'm not blaming anybody. I have walked through suffering and my suffering and trials have been incredibly tiny and gentle from God's hand compared to even many of you in this room. So I'm not saying that I'm an expert on suffering. I'm just saying I know with the tiny amounts of trials and suffering that I've gone through, I know that it's easy in those moments to think, God, what are you doing? To maximize what's been taken away, to minimize what God has given So I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying this is the reality of suffering. We need to understand when we go through suffering, this is going to be our reality. We're going to struggle to fully see because suffering blinds us. God is actually going to give, in the midst of the affliction, the very means for relieving those afflictions to Naomi. And she's standing right next to her. But she doesn't see. Naomi doesn't see. Um, this is often the case in the midst of trials and suffering that we're going through. We, we tend to not see the support that God's given to us because we're just focusing on what He's taken away. It reminds me of how many movies have we seen where the, the camera is going right in on on two people. Maybe they're falling off a cliff and they're thinking, "Oh no, we're going to die. We're falling off a cliff." And and they, they let go, we, we just got to jump, and they let go, and they're screaming, ah, and then the camera just slowly pulls back, and they just drop like three inches, right? They just fell down a little bit. They were at, their support was there all along. They didn't have to be afraid. Um, so many times, God's support is there. We just don't see it because we're blind in our suffering. Ultimately, the end of the story, we're going to see the reasons why God is doing what he's doing, but Naomi is struggling to see it. John Flavel says it this way. Some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. And right now, she's going through suffering, and she can't see what providence God is working in her life to bring about this amazing end of the story. you got to work it backwards. But brothers and sisters, we have the end of the story. So we can work every providence in God's ordaining of it in our life, we can work it backwards because we know the end of the story. So... Suffering blinds us. Now, to be clear, if Naomi could fully see, if she was told the ending of the story, it would not take away the pain. It wouldn't take away the pain. I believe it would take away the purposelessness of the feeling of this suffering. It wouldn't take away the pain. I've thought about Job a lot, where Job, in the midst of suffering, says, "God, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? I don't understand." And God just says, hey, let's go to the zoo for a little while. Let's look at animals. Who made those? Let's look at the seas. Who made that? He never answers Job's questions. Job's saying, what are you doing? What's the purpose of all this? What's happening? And God just says, even if I were able to tell you that, which I can't because I'm infinite, you couldn't fully grasp the purposes of everything that's going on. So can you just trust that the same God who made these animals, the same God who made the moon and the the stars and the sea, can you just trust that I have an infinite plan beyond all of your comprehension? I mean, even right now, maybe there's an angel up in heaven that's elbowing Job saying, hey, there it is again. Remember all your suffering? CBC is talking about your suffering. And somebody in CBC is going to be encouraged because of your suffering that they can trust your hand, they can trust your heart, they can trust what you're doing even when they don't fully understand why. Job, that's why. So if God would have said, Job, let me tell you every single thing that's going on, it would not have taken away the pain. Job would not have thought, fine, I'm fine with everything that happened. Neither would Naomi. It would just take away that sense of purposelessness. And that's why we need to preach the realities of Scripture that God is never not at work in our lives. He's always working. If Naomi could see it, oh, if only she could see it. And she's going to see it at the end. She's going to see it. But suffering blinds us. This is why, as I prayed earlier, this is why we preach sermons like this to prepare us for suffering. Because in the moment of suffering, I don't know if these things really help. If you're trying to be taught these realities, if somebody says, let me give you a sermon in the middle of the worst suffering that you've ever gone through. This is about suffering. Listen to it. It'll help you. (laughs) I don't think it will help you. I think it will hurt. I think it's difficult to wrestle with these things because suffering blinds us in the midst of suffering. That's why we need to be trained on how to view suffering before we ever get into it. So that in the midst of the suffering, we can just trust our training. We can trust what the word of God says. In the few little moments of suffering that I've gone through and trial that I've gone through, I don't really like reading deep theological books in those moments. I just like lying down and crying. So these are the moments where we, at CBC, we want to prepare our hearts for those moments of suffering. They're coming. We know they're coming. We want to prepare our hearts to be able to see through the suffering. We need to learn how to study hard to find the evidences of God's purpose in the midst of suffering. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, a Puritan writer, says this, a gracious heart spies mercies in every condition. Our tendency is to pour over our losses rather than ponder our mercies. Our hearts are more discontent at one loss than they are thankful at a hundred mercies. It's just a rebuke to my soul. We just look at the one loss, and we are frustrated by that and more discontent by the one lost than thankful at a hundred mercies. Some of the mercies are very mundane, and we're going to look at them here, but the reality is suffering blinds us. Now, there's one other thing that we have to say before we end this point. In the middle of verse 21, Naomi says, Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Witnessed against, that's a very legal term to say, I did something wrong, and now this is punishment for what I did wrong. No, there's two things that need to be said about what Naomi's saying. We've read the book of Job. We don't ever want to be Job's friends. So when she says, maybe I did something wrong and this is punishment for what I did wrong. We want to rush in and say, not necessarily. Not necessarily. We would be right to do that. Maybe, Naomi, maybe there's some sin that God's punishing you for, and ultimately it's not punishment because all of our punishment has been poured out on Jesus, so this is just discipline, this is just correction. But as we talked about in the first sermon, I don't think we can say that this is discipline. I don't don't think we could say necessarily that they did anything wrong. Maybe not the wisest at certain points, but I don't think that they were in sin necessarily. So Naomi is wise here to even ask the question, but we want to rush in and say, no, no, no. I don't, you can't say that it's because of sin. But this leads to the second issue. Even if this isn't for discipline, for correction, the reality is that in the moment of our suffering, it's hard not to feel like God's correcting you. That's why she's saying these words. I don't think that God's correcting her, but in the moment of suffering, it's hard not for our brains to just go instantly to, God must be correcting me. Now, I think it's wise to ask that question, but it's not always the case. And so if I was Naomi's friend, I would just rush in, I would hug her, I'd sit there and I'd cry with her. That's the only thing that Job's friends are commended for, sitting in silence with Job for seven days. God says, do that more often. Just don't talk. Just sit and cry. But if she would have and crying on my shoulder, if she would have said, this must be because of something I did, I would say, I don't, I don't think so, Naomi. I wouldn't go there. It's, it's wise if her to ask the question, but in the midst of suffering, it's hard not to feel like, I, I did this. Praise God, he's not a God of karma. If I do one bad thing, and bad things are gonna happen. God's not a God of karma. That leads us to the third point, and this is just verse 22. And this is really the whole point of, I believe, the book of Ruth and this section specifically. Not only, number one, is God sovereign over suffering. Number two, suffering can easily blind us. But number three, and this is the title of this sermon, the same Lord who takes away, the same God who takes away, also gives. Ruth is there, verse 22. Naomi returns, so she's back home, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess. There, Samuel had just told us she's from Moab. We have no doubt that she's from Moab. We don't need this definition of she's a Moabite woman. But he's reminding us how amazing it is that she would journey with Naomi and go back home to Bethlehem. She's an outsider. She's not of the same ethnic group. She returns from the land of Moab with Naomi, and they come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the harvest has come. The same Lord who takes away, never with malice in his heart, never with frustration in his heart. If you are a child of God, he takes away... Lamentations 3.33, without a a willingness, afflicting us with, not from his heart, with tears in his eyes saying, this isn't the best for you. I need to take this from you. He does it because he loves us. And then he gives. The same God who takes away is the same God who gives. And he's giving. There's little glimmers of gifts here at the end of chapter 1. But the gifts are going to just be on full display at the end of chapter 4. So the purpose of these verses are not to explain why bad things happen to good people. There truly are no good people. And sometimes what we call bad circumstances aren't actually bad. They're actually good behind the difficulties. We just don't have divine wisdom to understand it. No, the the point of this section is to say that sometimes the Lord takes away. He does. But the same Lord who takes away also gives. And what has he given just in one chapter? I want to summarize just one chapter. He's given four things, and we'll end with these four. God has given unremarkable grace, unremarkable grace. There's a barley harvest, just food. This isn't very remarkable. A famine happened, and now food's happening. But Naomi is so blinded by her suffering that she's not able to see, oh, God's hand is working, and he's giving a good gift. It's just, oh, the rains have come, the rains have gone. This is unremarkable grace. It's mundane grace. It's mundane mercy. We don't really see it. And sometimes when we're longing for signs and wonders and miracles to happen, manna falling from the sky, when it's just crops growing that we planted and they're growing, we just kind of tend to think, that's not really that remarkable, but that's still grace. That's still grace. Number two, the Lord gives uncompromising, steadfast love. He gives uncompromising, steadfast love. This is what I love about Naomi. This is why I don't find fault in anything that she's saying, because she is saying not only does the Lord give difficulty, but also the Lord gives hesed love. He gives both. He gives unremarkable grace. He gives uncompromising, steadfast love. It comes from His hand. Number three, the Lord gives unexplainable faith. The Lord gives unexplainable faith. That Ruth after everything that she's seen Naomi go through, and now hearing that Naomi says, this is from my God's hand, the the God that I worship, that now you're joining in to worship me, he's the one who's behind this. Why would Ruth ever sign up to be a part of this? This is unexplainable faith that she says, no, I love that God, I cherish that God, because I know he's good. Even though he's giving these bad circumstances, I know there's goodness and an intention behind it and a purpose behind it that's for my good. That's unexplainable faith. How is Ruth here? This is why Paul says in, first, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for to you it has been granted or gifted, graced. It's a gift, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. So it's a gift to suffer. But before that, he says, it's a gift to believe. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in the kindness and goodness of God, if you cherish Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is Mercy that you love him. That's not explained by natural causes. Your eyes, your fleshly eyes have been opened and your spiritual eyes have seen. It's a gift. It's unexplainable. So the Lord gives unremarkable grace. The Lord gives uncompromising, steadfast love. The Lord gives unexplainable faith. And finally, and we'll end here, the Lord gives unseen support. The Lord gives unseen support. We kind of talked about this already. Ruth says, I I went out full and now I'm empty. And the very person that she's neglecting to see beside her, Ruth, is going to be the very answer to why is all of this happening. It's unseen support. Chuck Swindoll told a story one time about a personal encounter that he had with a fellow student who was blind, physically blind, unable to see. He says this, and I just want to read his account. The man's name was John. John. And I spent a couple of hours a week reading to him. One day I asked him how he lost his sight. And he told me of an accident that happened when he was a teenager and how at that point he had simply given up on life. He said, when the accident happened, and I knew I would never see again, I felt that life had ended as far as I was concerned. I was bitter and angry with God for letting it happen. I took my anger out on everyone who was around me. I felt that since I had no future, I wouldn't lift a finger on my own behalf. Let others wait upon me. I shut my bedroom door and I refused to come out except for meals. Swindoll says, I knew this young man was eager, an eager learner and an earnest student, so I asked what had changed his attitude, and he told me this story. One day, in exasperation, my father came into my room and started giving me a lecture. He said he was tired of my feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming, and it was still my job to put up the storm windows. He yelled, you get those windows up by suppertime tonight, and he slammed the door on his way out. Well, said John, that made me so angry that I resolved to do it. Muttering and complaining to myself, I groped my way out to the garage. I found the windows. I found a stepladder, all the necessary tools, and I went to work. They'll be sorry when I fall off this ladder and I break my neck. But little by little, groping my way around the house, I got the job done. Then he stopped, and his sightless eyes misted up as he told me. I later found out that at no time during the day, Had my father ever been more than four or five feet away from my side? Our father is right by our side. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because he is with us. The Lord takes away. Yes, he does. But the Lord who takes away also gives. And God's sovereign hand is going to exceed Naomi's expectation, she is going to be blown away by God's sovereign providence by the end of this book. And I pray that you will be blown away by God's sovereign providence in your life. And We've covered the bitterness of the providence. Chapter 1 is the bitterness of the providence. Chapter 2 opens up with the sweet providence beginning to flow. We already got a hint of it at the end of chapter 1. But I pray that you'll come back next week and see how God's providential hand has worked not only through the bad, but now is working through the good. And I pray that you'll begin to see his hand on work in your life, in every area, for your good and for his glory. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We want to come before your throne room and say, we, we grapple many times along with Naomi, and that's why we don't really fault her, because we understand what she's feeling, what she's saying. But we love that she's clinging to your goodness. You are Yahweh, a covenant-keeping love. You are not turning your back on her. That's, That's the promise that's inherent in this grapple, in this wrestle. You're not turning your back. Whatever you're allowing for the affliction of our circumstances, it's for a purpose. We just don't know what it is all the time. And now this side of the cross, we have all of the ammunition we need to be able to say, we know the purpose ultimately doesn't take away the pain, but no suffering ever has to be purposeless. And so, Father, I pray that we would confirm these truths to our heart as we respond in faith, singing the promises of your character and your hand in our lives back to you this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.